you're seeking biblical wisdom and understanding in these difficult and trying times, and you recognize the power of God's Word to delve deep into the issues of the heart, then welcome to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney, husband, father, counselor, author, and teacher. Join us for Christ-centered, gospel-driven truth concerning our individual, marital, and parenting struggles. This is Biblical Counseling Today. So we've arrived here at the last episode of season six on the problem of suffering. I would say it's been rather exhaustive. You may say it's been really exhausting, but hopefully it's been worth it to spend time walking through this issue biblically. We all still have a lot to learn about responding well to the problem of suffering in our lives. If the worldwide pandemic of COVID-19 has taught us anything, it has taught us that even Christians struggle to deal with both individual suffering as well as corporate suffering. Here is my take on some of the worst lessons we've learned from COVID-19. First, we've learned to blame someone for our suffering. China has been blamed for unleashing COVID-19 on the world. Government leaders are regularly blamed for not eradicating this virus fast enough. Other people around us are blamed for not taking the virus seriously enough, not wearing masks, not abstaining from gathering. And then second, we've learned to think we can control how much we suffer. If people would all just do the right thing, this particular suffering would go away. If I work diligently to protect myself, I will not get the virus. If I force my parents or grandparents into staying isolated, they will not die from the virus. Human beings then have all the power, especially our scientists, who can solve all human suffering. Third, we've learned to divide, especially into two camps, the fearful and the faith-filled. Those who are bent more towards fear want to call themselves wise and understanding. Those who are bent more towards confidence see themselves as trusting God more. But the suffering life is not that simple. We all as Christians vacillate between fear and faith. We all have put our confidence in self at times as well as trust in God at times. Then there are a multitude of variables that relate to how we respond to suffering. The truth is there are not really two camps, but a spectrum of response. And yet each of these two sides judges the other, and Satan creates division, just what he wants to do when we are suffering. And then fourth, from COVID-19, we've learned to elevate the need for safety above all other things. We all want to avoid suffering as much as possible, so we tell each other and ourselves that the highest calling in this life is to stay safe. So again, we end up lecturing people to do the safest thing possible, as long as it's not too inconvenient. Wearing a mask has become the go-to safety measure because it's not that hard. But is physical safety the highest calling in this life? And then fifth, from COVID-19, we've learned to long for normalcy. Suffering in any way, especially suffering that lasts a while, always teaches us this lesson. If only we can get back to normal. This, of course, assumes that our old normal was great. Well, it was better than this, right? But is this what we are to long for as Christians? 
Or should we be longing for heaven to be with the Lord? Suffering should always give us a heavenward view, not simply a desire to be comfortable on this earth again. Now, I hope you've learned good things from COVID-19 that have drawn you closer to Christ and other people, rather than some of these wrong lessons and wrong ways to look at suffering. But if you've been tempted to see your individual and our corporate suffering the wrong way, then you need this final lesson on the problem of suffering, a true biblical response to any affliction that comes your way. Okay, let's walk through a biblical response to our suffering, to any affliction, disease, disability, or disorder. I want to highlight for you five major biblical responses, and then I'll give you some significant detail to each one. So here we go. First, the suffering Christian must go to God in prayer. This should always be our first response to our suffering. But is it? Personally, I tend to do everything else to solve my suffering and leave prayer for the last resort. But prayer should be our first resort. And we should be praying in very specific ways. Listen to Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. The writer to the Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Suffering sends us into a time of need. So we should come boldly to the throne of grace in prayer. Well, here are some of the basic elements of prayer in our suffering. Now, if you listen to the last episode, you can contrast these with Rabbi Kushner's view of prayer. First, there must be a self-examination to determine if there is sin to be confessed. Listen to Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is where all prayer should begin when it comes during a time of suffering. You need to ask God to show you if you're suffering for your own sin. God is the one who does the searching, and the Holy Spirit will make it clear to you. There may not be sin to be confessed, but if there is, confess it to the Lord. And then second, we must pray that God would be glorified. Just think about Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he was at the height of suffering. Even though he wanted to be freed from suffering, he first wanted God's will to be done. In other words, Jesus wanted God to be glorified. So in our suffering, we should want this first. We need to make it about God, not about us. Sincerely ask God to glorify himself in your suffering. Listen again to 1 Peter 4, verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. And then the third element of prayer, pray that there may be protection from temptation. When you suffer, you're open to sinning in ways you 
never were before. More sinful anxiety, more fear, anger, maybe apathy, bitterness, and then faithlessness. Jesus knew this fact and instructed his disciples to watch and pray. Remember what he said in Matthew 26, verse 41. Jesus says, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. When we suffer, our flesh is even more weak than usual. And then next, we must pray that the suffering might be removed if that would bring greater glory to God. Remember the Apostle Paul's example in 2 Corinthians 12, 8-10. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. While you certainly can ask for the affliction to go away, Paul shows that there should be a, a time that you stop praying that way. There's a limit to that prayer. And again, you only want your suffering to leave if that would glorify God the most. And then next in your prayers, you need to ask God for wisdom. And while you're asking for wisdom, reflect upon the law of God. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 71. The psalmist writes, It is good for me that I've been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Suffering can certainly make you more wise in this life. But do you use your suffering to learn more of God's word and God's ways? Pray with the psalmist that your suffering will force you into learning more of what God requires of you. Finally, express your feelings and innermost thoughts to God in prayer. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. God wants to hear the thoughts and feelings of his children, like any good, perfect parent. In your suffering, you can cry out to the Lord. You can tell him how hard this is. Casting your cares on him is what humility is all about. God doesn't want you to be stoic in your suffering. He loves you, and he wants to hear from your heart. So that's all the first principle, the first biblical response biblical prayer. And then second, the Christian must respond to his trials with joy. Here are two important passages that teach us this response. James 1 verses 2 and 3. My brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Notice here that trials aren't joyful. You're to count them as joy. Look at them as with joy. 1 Peter 1 verses 6 through 9 is the next one, and it says this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So here's the way to understand what this means for the Christian. Three points. First, joy is a way of thinking about one's trials. It's an attitude. Second, joy is a decision, not a feeling. And third, joy springs forth from the reality of the cross of Christ and the prospects of glory. Listen to Romans 8, verses 22 to 25. Paul writes, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... We eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Joy should not be confused with some happy, giddy sort of feeling. It's a deeper heart attitude that is grounded in faith, hope, and peace. Only the Christian can have true joy in suffering. Suffering on its own doesn't produce joy at all. It is the work of the Spirit, a fruit of the Spirit. Well, let's get back to our five major responses to suffering with the third one. The Christian must respond to trials with patience and perseverance. Here's a good definition of patience. Patience is the power to will and to work through suffering in a biblical way. Patience is the power to will and to work through suffering in a biblical way. Listen to James 1, verses 3 and 4. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then Romans 12, 12. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. So here are just a few truths about patience to hold on to. First, patience should be exercised because of the coming of Christ. Here, James 5, verses 7 through 8. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Patience for the Christian isn't something nebulous where you just put up with something for no reason. Patience is always connected to the priority of waiting for something else. We can be patient in suffering because it isn't the end of the story. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is taking us to heaven. That's what we're waiting for. And then second, the lack of patience will be evident to the extent that we grumble and complain. Impatience only leads to ungodly complaining. 
Now, remember, you can share your heart with the Lord in a biblical complaint, but you can also, at the same time, exercise patience. And then third, the greatest example of patience in trial other than Jesus is Job. Job knew how to question God about his trials and his suffering, but still be patient, waiting on the Lord to appear. Listen to James 5, verses 10 through 11. James writes, My brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Job learned that true patience leads to godly perseverance, and as you heard, produces the compassion and mercy of the Lord in your life. Listen to this short quote from Warren Wearsby. The person who doesn't learn patience will have a difficult time learning anything else. And then our fourth biblical response to suffering as Christians The Christian must respond to his trials by showing love and compassion for others in the midst of his own pain. Friends, this is really key to solving the whole problem of suffering in your life. Here's the first one. A suffering sort of love will be evident in being a servant to others. Sadly, we typically tend to be very selfish in our suffering. What a high form of love it is when we can love others while we are suffering. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 12, verses 12 and 13. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. We read that part. Verse 13, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. You see how he links patience to love Patience to caring for others. Well, then second, love while you're suffering will be evident in blessing those who persecute you. In doing so, you'll overcome evil with good. We learn this in Luke 6, don't we, where Jesus teaches us how to love our enemies. So when our suffering is at the hands of other people, blessing them and loving them is the response that best glorifies God and best deals with your suffering. Again, Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 12 and 13. He writes, And we labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the scourge of all things until now. And then third, finally, a suffering sort of love will be evident in confronting and exposing evil as well. When you do suffer because of the sins of others, a loving response is to confront and expose it. Christians are not just to be passive when suffering in this way. Think about it. This is love for God, but it's also love for other potential victims and even love for the person who has made you suffer wrongly in some way. Paul writes about this in Ephesians 5, 11 and 12. He says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. And then here is the final piece of the biblical response to suffering. The Christian must respond to his trials by trust in the faithfulness of God. 
ultimately, all suffering should grow our faith in God, not shrink it. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as a faithful creator. Of course, then we should remember the great example of Daniel's three friends in Daniel 3, verses 16 to 18. We read, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you set up. That, my friends, is faith. Faith in suffering and trusting in God to do the best in our life. So just a few essential elements concerning faith in our suffering. First, faith rests in the confidence that God is sovereign over all circumstances in life and is infinite in wisdom and is unfailing in love. Second, faith does not demand that God makes a way out of suffering, but looks to him for a way through it. Again, we learn that in Daniel 3, 16 through 18 as other places. And then third, faith keeps time and its trial in perspective. Like Paul does in Romans 8, 18, where he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And then finally, faith, when we're suffering, lives by the grace of God. We come full circle to the book of Habakkuk that we discussed in our very first episode on the reality of suffering. Remember these words from Habakkuk 3, verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation." The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on the high hills. Habakkuk knew that suffering was coming and he struggled with it. Habakkuk resolved to be humbly submitted to a holy, powerful, eternal, faithful, and just God. And Habakkuk, like us, found God to be adequate, God to be trusted in the face of pain and suffering. Well, I hope we have nearly exhausted, again, the topic of the problem of suffering through these 12 podcasts. Suffering is exhausting, isn't it? But hopefully you have learned that it is good exhaustion provided for you by a father who knows what you need. I pray that as you suffer and counsel others who are suffering, you will respond in ways that magnify the name of God and trust more deeply in the grace of God. On that note, I will end with just one more quote. No, it's not a quote by Rabbi Kushner, so it's a good one. This is by the great pastor and theologian John Stott. Here it is. 
if it was reasonable for Job to trust the God whose wisdom and power have been revealed in creation, how much more reasonable is it for us to trust the God whose love and justice has been revealed in the cross? The reasonableness of trust lies in the known trustworthiness of its object. And no one is more trustworthy than the God of the cross. The cross assures us that there is no possibility of a miscarriage of justice or of the defeat of love now or on the last day. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney. This weekly podcast is supported by Biblical Counseling and Training Ministries, which you can learn more about at bctministries.com. If you have found yourself encouraged or challenged today, please share this podcast with your church, family, and friends. Rate us on iTunes and your social media outlets. It really helps. Until next time, may you enjoy the riches of God's compassionate grace and mercy in your life.